We are doing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We were uh, doing something else for the last few weeks, but uh, we'll get back into this. Matthew 2 this morning. And if you've been following along, you know that Matthew is the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. In fact, 62 times in these 28 chapters, Matthew refers to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or refers to Christ as the king or something along that line. And the way that it works is this, that God is the great king over all. And God gave man dominion over all of the creation under him. And so mankind is to exercise God's dominion in this realm, in this world. But, of course, mankind, in the exercise of that dominion, rebelled against his overlord and determined to be independent. And as a result, brought sin and death and a curse upon our world. God made man a little lower than the angels and put all things under his feet, and yet man rebelled against his maker, his creator. But God prophesied in the scriptures over and over about a great end-time king who would finally bring the full flowering of God's perfect kingdom on earth. And so God's people have waited and waited and waited for that kingdom to come. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when John the Baptist shows up and begins to preach, and when Christ comes, their message is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The king has come. And the people are excited anticipating what God will do. But as you follow the story of Christ, he eschews the spotlight. He deflects attention from himself most of his earthly ministry until finally where we are in the Gospel of Matthew is that we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And he has just ridden into the city of Jerusalem dramatically and triumphantly and been hailed by the people as the great king, the son of David, who was to come and bring God's kingdom on earth. And now the anticipation is at a fever pitch among his followers. But the good news of the kingdom is met with a stark reality on the ground because immediately adjacent to the most holy place in Israel, the very throne of God in their midst, that holy of holies, immediately adjacent to that is the garrison of the armies of their oppressors, Romans. And I bring that up because that is exactly where we as Christians live our lives at the juxtaposition between the kingdom of God and 
the kingdoms of men. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are seeking the good of Babylon, and yet we are longing for the heavenly Jerusalem. And this passage, spoken at that time in that place, this passage teaches us how to think as Christians about living in those two kingdoms, even while we're waiting still for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, many of the people uh, had hoped for that he would overthrow their Roman oppressors, that he would lead a great revolt against their overlords. Others, his enemies, those who did not believe his claim, they came hoping to get him in trouble with Rome. That's exactly what we see beginning in chapter 22, verse number 15, and really going right along through the end of the chapter. But our text this morning is Matthew 22, 15, 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to them, to him, excuse me, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? And Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, left him, went away. This is really the first of three sort of rhetorical traps that these people try to lay for the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 15, they said he's says that they sought to entangle him. These were Jesus' enemies uh, questioning him in order to, to test him, to trap him. And it really runs, as I said, through the end of the chapter. The first of these three tests is a political trap. The second is a theological test. And the third is an ethical challenge that they give to Jesus. And What's amazing is, uh, is the nature of the company that comes to Christ to pose this question. The Bible says that this was a, uh, a um, gathering of Pharisees and Herodians. And it might be helpful to, to know a little bit more about those uh, people. The Pharisees, I, I know many of you are familiar with them, the Pharisees were a, a religious party uh, but they were also very sympathetic to those who um, who hated the, the Roman oppressors and, and even to those who, who wanted to overthrow Rome. 
the Herodians, on the other hand, were probably more of a political faction and presumably sympathetic to the Herodian family uh, whose rule was at the will of Rome and so presumably were more sympathetic to Rome. Nevertheless, these two groups who might otherwise be opposed have come together in their unbelief and antagonism to the Lord and sought to entrap him. And so they come to him they look to him as if he's a sort of rabbinical authority, or they, they speak to him in that way, uh, as if he uh, they've come to him to, to settle their dispute. And their flattery is, is obvious to us who know here their true intent, but you can just really read it laid on thick in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true. And you know that you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. If you, for you are not swayed by appearances. <laughs> oh, the hypocrisy! As if they believed that he was true indeed. They had no such faith. This was, in fact, carefully crafted trap. Here was the question that they put to him: Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or no. Now, this was actually a major hot button issue in first century Jewish Palestine. Back in AD 6, the Romans had instituted uh, a poll tax, and that was a tax on every Jewish adult, regardless of his, his income or his means. And to some Jews, that tax was an unacceptable symbol of their subjugation to Rome. And in their view, paying tribute to Rome was incompatible with allegiance to God. And ground zero for that kind of thinking was actually the northern district of Galilee, where Jesus was. Josephus, the historian, says, quote, a certain Galilean whose name was Judas prevailed with his countrymen to revolt and said that they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would after God submit to mortal men as their lords. He goes on to, to describe this rebellion that had taken place a number of years earlier before this incident with Jesus. And then he goes into a description of, of four of the various sects of the Jews, being the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives. Uh, Paul, I think, says that, that they were the strictest sect of the Jews. And he talks about the Sadducees, who also uh, talked about a lot in the Gospels. The Sadducees were more liberal theologically and uh, more secular overall. And then there were the Essenes, he mentions, uh, who were kind of separatists. They were monkish kind of people who, who went off and lived in communes out in the desert. And then finally, there were, he says, a fourth group that we have come to call the Zealots. 
Josephus says this, the fourth sect of Jew Jewish philosophy, of the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notion, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and lord. The nation, he says, began to grow mad with this distemper, and those zealots began to be more influential among the people to the extent that they roused a great number of Jews uh, to uh, revolt against Rome, that a revolt that ultimately culminated in the Roman uh, siege on Jerusalem and ultimately the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 7. So Jesus is, is interacting with these men right in the midst of that whole uh, background. And now, here is Jesus, another Galilean, and they come to him wanting to know his view. Did Jesus, like the zealots and perhaps the Pharisees who at least sympathized with them, did he believe that paying taxes to the emperor is fundamentally incompatible with being under the rule of God? and so must be resisted? Or did he perhaps like the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Essenes, did he, was he more of a pragmatist and willing to do whatever Rome required so that the Jews could have peace? What was his position? Of course, in this case, they're not really expecting him to change any of their minds. They've not come to get any sort of honest resolution to their disagreement. They've come to entrap him. And if he answers, on the one hand, yes, we, you should pay the taxes to Caesar, then they hope to turn the majority of his followers against him. Because there's a strong anti-Roman sentiment one of his own, in fact, it was a former zealot. But on the other hand, if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then, of course, they hope to turn the Roman governing officials against him and that he will be imprisoned or worse. In fact, they will try to make this charge at his trial. But, of course, they won't be able to present any evidence. Well, Jesus saw through their trap. Verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, says, why put me to the test, you hypocrite? He's going to put them to silence in each one of these interactions we'll see over the next weeks. But then he gives an answer to their question. And, and it's an answer that not only sidesteps a trap, but more fundamentally, more importantly, it leaves us all with a guiding principle about how we live in between these two kingdoms. Jesus says in verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. 
Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now, here on the screen is a picture of a denarius. I think it'll be there. And, uh, great. You see the front? The front of the denarius has the head of the emperor. And on it is the inscription. It reads this way, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the god Augustus. And of course, that was a part of the propaganda of the worship of the emperor, to see him as a god, or the son of a god. And on the back is a picture of the goddess Ox, or Peace, and around on the side is an abbreviation for the words Pontifus Maximus, or High Priest, because the emperor is seen not just to be, he's, he wants himself to be seen, not just to be a ruler of a political realm or an earthly realm, but a spiritual ruler, a god, if you will, who has absolute, who ought to have absolute submission from all of his subjects. It was part, as I say, of the, of the propaganda of the Roman Empire. And Jesus holds that coin up and the very language that Jesus uses seems to highlight the blasphemy in Caesar's claims. Notice what Jesus says. Whose likeness is this? And whose inscription, whose image is on this coin? And that, no doubt, should have caused the Jews who knew the scripture to remember the second commandment, which says that you should make no likeness of God, no carved images, and the first commandment, which says you shall have no other God before me. And yet here on this point is a man who viewed himself as God and made himself out to be the supreme Authority for all of his subjects above all their other loyalties. So, come to him. What is Jesus going to say? Will he say that Caesar is a devil and you should just refuse to give him his due? Or will he say that Caesar is a god and you owe him your supreme allegiance? Lord will not be forced into this kind of false choice. Gives beautiful answer that silences his critics and becomes a guiding principle for us today. This is no mere expedient to avoid a trap. This is the word of the Son of God. The middle of verse 21, notice it. This is the crux. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is Christ's word for us. What is it that the Lord would have us to take away? Number one, he says to honor the emperor, pay your taxes, 
give the government back its dinari, or its yen, or its pesos, or its dollars, or whatever central bank calls its legal tender. On the other hand, don't confuse the emperor with your god, the one who's to have your supreme allegiance and who is the greatest authority, the one and only true God of heaven. The scripture teaches them, friends, two things which are not incompatible. There is an and connecting these two. On the one hand, scripture teaches that government is a good gift to humanity. It is ordained by God as God's tool and the leaders as God's servants, even the bad ones. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says that God changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In Jeremiah 29 verse 7, the Lord told the exiles in Babylon, listen to this, seek the welfare of the city in which I have sent you into exile. This wicked, heathen city, seek the good of that city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And of course the Lord used people like Daniel, Nehemiah to serve in the courts, even and pagan kings. This is the, the, the theme and the, the teaching of our Lord that is picked up by his followers and enlarged in the epistles, like in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, now here's the conclusion, if that's the case, if God is behind every governing authority, then he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There are, obviously, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but there are, in fact, illegitimate authority and authorities that should be resisted under that at all. But as a general principle, as a rule for living in this world, even under, in, in, in wicked countries and wicked nations, the Lord teaches his people to be subject to those governing authorities. In fact, in Romans 13, he goes on to talk about how governments are generally good for society. That governments are, in fact, a gift from God. That they do, in fact, curb much of the evil that would be uh, that would be taking place in a society without them. And so he says in Romans 13, verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. 
taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor. Again, these these passages are continuing to expand on and reinforce what Jesus is saying. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. There is no government on earth that is truly good in the ultimate sense. Every government, even the best government you can possibly imagine here on earth, is tainted with imperfections and exercises authority in ways that are not in keeping with God's ultimate authority. Caesar, Caesars of Jesus' day, Paul's day, they used the tribute money that Jesus is telling us to give, telling them to give. They used the tribute money to fund the legions in their unrighteous wars. They used the money to even at, on occasion oppress Christians. Yet I want you to see what Peter writes. Again, in, in founding on what our Lord is saying here. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 13 and following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good in terms of the government, but in doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says in verse 16, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then here's how he wraps it up, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And then he goes on, and, and in this immediate context, he follows that up with illustration after illustration after illustration of Christians being under authority, authorities that are not what they ought to be. He gives the illustration of servants. He gives the illustration of a wife who has an unbelieving husband or someone who does not obey the word. He gives an, an, the example of our Lord, his honoring of authority, um, even when he was rebuked and reviled. But, but here, here's what he says in verse 18 with regard to servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering, sorrows, excuse me, while suffering unjustly. And, 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 and in the same context, he, would, he is saying that we should honor not only those, uh, those masters who are unjust, but those governments that are unjust in so many. This is one part of the teaching of our Lord, that we should give back to Caesar what we owe to Caesar. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there comes a point when the government demands something that is in direct violation with God's revealed will. In those moments, Christians must 
obey the one and only true and living God. For Caesar is not God. No government can claim our ultimate allegiance except the government of heaven. Acts chapter 5, you know it well, the local Jewish government mandated that the apostles no longer preach or teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they made that famous statement that we must obey God rather than just a few decades from the time Jesus was interacting here with Jewish leaders, Christians would feel the full force of the wrath of Rome for refusing to offer a pinch of incense on the altar in worship to the emperor. In fact, many of your and, and our brothers and sisters in the faith were imprisoned, persecuted, even killed because of their allegiance to God. Second century, does he to acknowledge Jesus says, render Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God, God's. Coin may say God, but we know must our agent. Like, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Christians can serve a pagan king. But when that king requires that they bow down and worship, they are willing to go even into the fiery furnace. This is a challenging passage because when people hear it, when they read it, in my experience, people tend to hear one side or the other, almost to the exclusion of the other. Some people hear this statement from the Lord, and all they seem to hear is, render to Caesar. Render to Caesar. Obey the government. Do what you're supposed to do. I think of the sad fact that many of the German Christians during the Second World War believed that somehow they must be required by Christ to support the Nazi government regime. And this is not just one or two, this is a whole number of people who claim the name of Christ. Only a small group, the confessing church, stood against such overreach. And I want to warn us all to be careful about hearing only one side of this. Render to Caesar. Obey God. Give your allegiance to those who are in power. And I think we have to be especially careful in a day and time in which we have a president who said during his campaign, I believe, 
I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York City and shoot somebody, not lose any voter. Kind of blind loyalty sometimes people have to someone that they appreciate or to to someone who is seen to be an authority. Brothers and sisters, I want to plead with you that your obedience on one side of this equation not blind you with regard to obedience on the other side. I find it find it alarming that many Christians would be more upset and, and anxious for someone to criticize their politics than to belittle their God. They're more up in arms about arguing for their politics than they are over the doctrine of the Word of God. And I, I know I say this at the risk of polarizing you over the issue of a particular personality, and I, I do not mean to by in any way. Donald Trump is a drop in the bucket, as it were, uh, the dust on the scales in, in terms of, of all eternity and the outworking of, of God's, God's plan. I, so this is not about a personality. That's what I mean. I, I am thankful for a number of things that he has done. I say this to get our attention and to alert us to ways that people can become blinded by a false loyalty that, that keeps them from seeing um, ways in which perhaps they are compromising their loyalty to God himself. Danger for all of us. And on the other hand, there are some who, when they hear this statement from the Lord Jesus, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. All they hear is render to God. Render to God. Who is this Caesar? He's uh, someone who is a usurper. Dorothy Day a self-proclaimed Christian anarchist and a leading figure in the Catholic worker movement of the 20th century. She famously quipped, if we rendered to God all things that belong to God, there would be nothing left for Caesar. And surface, it sounds true, right? I mean, God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. But did not God himself say, quote, because of this also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God? Romans chapter 13, verse number six. In other words, in most cases, rendering to Caesar is part of your rendering to God. So that they're not necessarily or fundamentally in opposition. Of course, many Christians, 
the world over throughout human history have chosen prison rather than to be uh, in disobedience to God. Even today, right now, there are Chinese pastors and Christians who are imprisoned because they refused to whitewash their theology with government-approved theology. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. And I just, I know it's going to take incredible discernment to know the difference. It's going to require grace, that we would have grace with one another over where we draw the line. There was controversy among the English Puritans in their day over whether or not to submit to the ecclesiastical government and, and the civil government, for that matter, and the requirement that they wear certain vestments uh, of the clergy. And some of the Puritan pastors admonished submission to authority, that this was a matter uh, of indifference in the Scripture, and that they could... They could render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Others believe that this was an issue where they must draw a line in the sand and refuse to uh, obey and refuse to compromise the purity of, of the gospel. Christians are going to need wisdom and mutual discussion and much prayer and humility grace if we're going to obey these commands of our Lord work them out in our situation today I want to plead with you to keep both of these commands in mind render to Caesar render to God to be careful not to let the one always be subsumed in the other one. I think John Calvin warned us wisely in this when he said, on the one hand, fanatic and barbarous men are furiously endeavoring to overturn the order established by God. And on the other, the flatterers of princes extolling their power without measure Hesitate not to oppose it to the government of God. He says, unless we meet both extremes, the purity of the faith will perish. I think there's so much wisdom there. I think that is taking the command and the principle that our Lord has laid out and the, and the explanations that are given in the rest of the Gospels and taking them to heart, applying them wisely to the world in which we live. Let us be guilty neither of subversion on the one hand nor of statism on the other. Let us be guilty neither of refusing to honor the emperor with his taxes on the one hand nor blindly being obedient to the emperor in all things on the other. Let us see Caesar as God's servant doing his will and be 
on the other hand, willing to obey God rather than men, no matter what the consequences. May God give us wisdom and obedience, grace. Well, Father, I have expounded this passage as carefully as I know how. I pray we continue to shape the thinking of your people with nothing but the word. That the word would trump everything else. All of our opinions all of our inclinations, that the word would guide us. Lord, just give us grace to be careful with the word, to make these applications as wisely as we, as Father, help us in these times be discerning. Lord, we don't know what the future will hold and when and how your people will be called upon to have to make really difficult decisions along these lines. I ask you for grace in this, to lead your people to think rightly. I pray for grace for, for all of the Christian leaders in our country, that, that the word would guide them, that we would together uh, have your wisdom to be able to, to give some direction to your people. I pray that you would give us courage and grace in that time when when we may have to live in disobedience to the powers that be on earth, where we pray that you would give us a faithful, trusting submission, acknowledging your greater sovereignty over all things. We pray that that may be the case. Pray that we may submit even to unjust rulers, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. We know that in the last day, we'll make all wrongs right. We will bring about the kingdom of peace, joy that we so long for and anticipate. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we pray.